do thank you for your abundant provision. And as we give back to you, we don't claim to give from anything that we have earned. Our hands have accomplished nothing. Every good gift comes from you. We give back to you what you have first given to us, and we're thankful. We're grateful for how you have met our needs. And we look to you, Lord, not thinking that we can provide for ourselves. We look to you as our provider, and we trust you in the coming days ahead. Meet our needs. And Lord, as we give these tithes and offerings unto you, we do pray that you would take and use them for your purposes, accomplish your good work, both here and around the world, that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I know some people are coming and going this time of year, so... Well, there, there are goodbyes, um, but there's also still a few hellos. We still, I still recognize, uh, Marcy, it's good to have you with us today. Um, it's been a long time, so love to see your face here with us. Um, be sure to say hi to Marcy and, uh, and bye to, I know there's a handful of people that will be leaving this week as well. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and as we approach it now, we confess our need to to, to look to you to understand. Would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Would you open our hearts that we may see wonderful things? From your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, I was in Izmir, Turkey for a conference for a couple days. Izmir is where Smyrna, if you remember when we looked at the church in Smyrna, that's where uh, Smyrna was. And I was asleep in the middle of the night, of course, but I was awoken, surprisingly, to what... It took me a few seconds to realize what was going on, but it was an earthquake. I had never experienced an earthquake before, and I haven't experienced one since. And it wasn't a big earthquake. I don't know what the numbers were, but if you've ever been in one, it doesn't matter what size it is. It is startling. It's unnerving. 
I think, you know, you see videos or earthquake, you know, where it's captured in the news and things shake, but it's a whole other thing when you're in the shaking and there's no control. You have nothing to say about it. You just hang on for the ride. So, you know, this was something that, that uh, really surprised me. And um, I learned that it was no big deal to anybody there. In fact, there were people who slept right through it because earthquakes are very common in this region. In fact, through, they have been common uh, through this region of the whole seven churches of Asia. They've been happening there for a long time. There's a, uh, uh, it's a, an area of instability that makes the area prone to earthquakes. And because of this, the, the people in the city of Philadelphia were afraid to be in the city. And so they developed a habit of building their homes outside of the city walls. They would leave the city to go out into what were the fields, what we would consider the country, and build homes there because they were afraid. And so you think of this, the, the situation here as Jesus comes to this church. Here's a people who uh, live in fear. Now, we understand a little bit of it, like with hurricanes, but we get a heads up with hurricanes. Earthquakes are something that you don't have any warning of. They just come. And if, if you live in an area that is prone to this and you never know it's coming, there's a sense of stress from that. And not just the stress of not knowing that it's coming, but how big will it be? You know, we know when the hurricane's coming. We know how big it's going to be, and, and, and we can prepare for it. It's so different with an earthquake. And on top of that, I think of just the, the stress of living in flux, living in a transient state of life. If you've ever lived out of suitcases, if you've ever traveled for business, or if you've had to be in a temporary housing or home for a short period of time, you know how exhausting it is. It's unsettling to not be in your home. I realize that's a first world problem uh, when we think of many people, how many people live around the world, but it's just something that we could relate to, that we like, you know, there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed, being in your own home. And so there's a sense of the people there knowing an unsettledness. There was a big earthquake there in 17 AD, so this would have been a few decades before the letter was written to them, but not so long before that people wouldn't have remembered it. And in this earthquake, much of the city was destroyed, and the current emperor of Rome, Tiberius, uh, showed mercy to the city of Philadelphia by not having them pay taxes for five years. So his, his version of FEMA, instead of sending them money and resources to rebuild, he just said, you don't have to send me money for the next five years. And because of his incredible great, uh, grace to them in this act, they renamed the city Neo-Caesarea, or Caesar's New City, and they erected a monument to him there. And that stayed the name of the city for 30 years until the next emperor came in, Vespasian, and his middle name was Flavia, so they named the city Flavia. Once again, we see the good shepherd of his church who knows his sheep coming to demonstrate to them not only an intimate knowledge of who they are and their lives, but he understands their circumstances. We've seen this with each of the churches so far, and here we see it again with Philadelphia. These people had to go in and out of the city because of earthquakes. And so Jesus says to them that in the New Jerusalem, they will be made pillars, permanent fixtures of the building, and will be safe, never having to go in and out again. That's the promise he gives to them. Their city's name had been changed. They struggled with their identity because of the persecution of the Jews there. And so Jesus promises to give them his name, 
a true identity that will not be taken away. They were facing difficulties from being powerless and would almost certainly face growing persecution in the coming days. This was the trend for all these churches, and part of the reason of the writing of Revelation was to prepare them for this. And so Jesus strengthens them with the promise that he will keep them, not from suffering, but from ultimate harm. So much with the Church of Philadelphia as with the other churches that we can relate to, including our own decreasing influence as Christians in our culture. We know the world constantly changes. It, uh, it does everywhere and it does all the time, but it does seem to be changing at a more rapid rate than ever because of technology and communication and transportation. And it seems that we are on a certain trajectory in our own, own culture, and it's a trajectory that is not as optimistic for believers. In this time, we should remember the words of Jesus in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so while we have certainly lived in times of great freedom, both in terms of being able to worship and gather to believe what we want to believe, uh, we know that we have not been promised those freedoms in this life. And there are many believers around the world who don't enjoy what we enjoy in that. I think there is growing evidence that one day persecution will come in our own nation, that Christians will not be allowed to say what they believe or hold to their beliefs or will even be punished for saying what they believe. And I don't say this to create fear or to cause anxiety, but so that we would be prepared, that we would be alert, that we would be ready so that we are strengthened by the hope that we have in Christ. Not prepared to get more worried. You know, we're good at that. Uh, some of us more than others. We're good at making ourselves anxious, and we're good at making ourselves even more anxious if we think about it enough. That's not what we're, we need to do here. I mean, the, one of the overarching themes, I hope you've seen it already in the book of Revelation, is that you may have hope. That's why we're looking at it, so that we would be strengthened in hope. We need this hope. And so if we do experience persecution in our own lifetimes, we need to remember the church at Philadelphia, who though she had but little power would one day be made a pillar in the temple of God. Our hope is not found in our circumstances. If it was, we would be filled with anxiety. But our hope is found in the one who rules over all of our circumstances and through them, who promises to keep us, as he promised the church at Philadelphia, who promises to give us a new name. As we look in verse 7, the greeting, uh, these are familiar to us now as we're on 6th, of the seven churches. We're starting to learn the pattern, hopefully. Uh, Jesus addresses the angel of the church, and then he identifies something about himself that's important for them to know. And as we have said probably every week, it references back to that original vision that John had in, in Revelation 1. Jesus refers back to that, and he does the same thing here. I've said it before. I'm saying it again now. I know I'll say it again. We need to keep this in mind when we come to the prophetic details of Revelation. That's typically what people get the most excited about. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to what the details are. Let's get to what all this stuff means. Revelation is a letter sent by the head of the church, Jesus, to these congregations that they may be strengthened 
by knowing Him. This was my motivation for preaching through Revelation. is so that we as a congregation would be strengthened by knowing Christ. Knowing the timeline of events, knowing what the imagery represents and how it will all unfold is secondary to knowing our Savior. If you write things down, that's something that you may want to write down, if not on a piece of paper in in your mind. That knowing the timeline of events, what the imagery represents and how it will all unfold is secondary to knowing our Savior. This book is in the Bible that we might see Jesus for who he is and be assured by the work that he has done for us. That's what we need to come back to again and again and again. So remember this then as we move forward through the book and we do get into those details. Jesus begins by describing himself as the Holy One, the True One. We could, we could camp out here uh, for the whole sermon, and I certainly want us to keep this in mind as we do move through the text. There's so much to be said just about those two attributes, that self-revelation of who Jesus is. Two things that I would mention that, that would be especially important for the church at Philadelphia. Uh, for the attribute of God's holiness, uh, we, well, one, it's a key attribute. We see this throughout Scripture, that God is holy. Uh, in fact, it's, a, it's such a key attribute that his other attributes can be described or modified by this attribute. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. It means more than that he's perfect or that he's pure. It means that he is set apart, that there is none other like him. I don't know if it was in a prayer or reading or song that we sang this morning, but that line was in there, uh, and and it hit me like, that's it. There's none other like him. And this is what the church needed to hear, that Jesus is pointing to his divinity. Uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament is referred to as holy over and over again. It's important. This is what the Jews were attacking. It's important for the church there to be reminded of who Jesus is. And it ties in then to the second thing about this aspect of his truth or that he is truth. Uh, it speaks to the reality of what God has said God will do. And Jesus is a manifestation of the truth of God's word, God's promises. He promised a Messiah. He promised a Redeemer. He promised Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, and this is who Jesus is. The Jews did not believe this, and this is part of the conflict that occurred in this, in this city and in many cities around. The details, he doesn't give a lot of details about what the persecution looks like, but we know from other passages in Scripture, we know from other historical documents of what the, the rift was. The Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they attacked these believers uh, they wanted to push them out of town. They wanted to drive them out, saying that they, the Jews, were the only true children of God. And so Jesus is saying to them that he is the true one, that he is the one who had been promised in the Old Testament, that he is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. You know, the Jews were looking for their own version of a deliverer. They wanted a, a political or a military deliverer to deliver them from the oppression of Rome at that time. And throughout history, it's been other empires. And what they needed was a deliverance from their sin, something that was eternal, not temporary. And they didn't understand this, and they missed it. So the church in Philadelphia needed this strengthening, that he is the Holy One and the True One, that Jesus was the Redeemer who had been promised to come, and having come to accomplish that redemptive plan, was now ruling and reigning and would care for his flock. They needed these words. 
he adds to that that he has the key of David and that he is the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So each of these introductions that we see with the, the messages to the churches, they, again, they refer back to that original vision that John has in, in Revelation 1. Uh, but this one expands on it a little bit because the keys that Jesus is described as having in Revelation 1, one is it's plural, it's the keys of death and hell. Uh, here it's singular, it's the key of David. And so it is an expansion. Uh, the keys of death and hell point to Jesus' atoning work in defeating sin and death and conquering sin and death. He has done that. It's final once and for all. But because of this, he is uh, elevated to the, to, the, to the throne. He is now seated on the throne. Uh, he is fulfilling that promise that uh, to David that your throne would be forever and ever. Of your kingdom, or of his kingdom rather, there would be no end. And so this now is the key that he possesses. He has the key of David. And more importantly, or, or more clearly maybe I should say, it's, it, it, we need to look back to Isaiah 22 because that, that's where these words come from. We're going to see this a lot in the book of Revelation where Jesus uses um, Old Testament references, like specific words. So there's, it's not just an allusion to an Old Testament line, but it's a specific reference. And of course, Jesus did this in his earth, earthly ministry quite a bit. Uh, so he's unfolding to us, to, to, to them, but also to us in our day, what the Old Testament was pointing to, what it, was, what it meant. He, in a sense, you know, exegetes the Old Testament for us. And so here he points back to a passage in Isaiah 22. And in this passage, Eliakim receives the key of David. So there's this connection. And it is said of Eliakim there that what he shuts, no one will open, and what he opens, no one will shut. So direct correlation, it's not an illusion, it's, it's the same exact language. So Eliakim is a type of Christ. He's pointing us to Christ in the Old Testament. He is a forebearer. For example, the key in chapter 22 of Isaiah is put on Eliakim's shoulder. Sounds a little bit like the Messiah in Isaiah 9, right? His government shall be on his shoulders. If we com- keep comparing Isaiah 22 and 9, Eliakim is described as having uh, or as being a father to those in Jerusalem and Judah. Again, when we flip back to Isaiah 9, we remember the promise of the Messiah, wonderful counselor, the everlasting father. So there's that correlation between the two. In Isaiah 22, it is said of Eliakim that he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And when we look in Isaiah 9, we read of the coming Messiah, there will be no end to the increase of his government on the throne of David. Greg Beale writes this, The point of this is that, whereas once Eliakim ruled over Israel, now Christ, of whom Eliakim is a prophetic type, rules over the church, the true Israel. Christ alone determines who will and will not enter God's kingdom. This is what the church in Philadelphia needed to hear. Not, not just the church in Philadelphia, all of the churches, because again, that was one of the benefits of the way this letter was constructed. Individual messages to the churches, but the letter went to all the churches, so they all got to read this. And it's the point of the book of Revelation that this is who is in control. This is who is reigning. Whether they had little power, as the church in Philadelphia seems to, whether they were being persecuted, whether they were having to take a tough stand, whether they were just fighting against temptation in their lives, they needed to look to their Redeemer who is holy and true, that He is reigning and ruling over all matters. They were to keep their eyes fixed on the author of their faith rather than getting distracted by everything that was happening around them or in their own lives. 
And isn't that the same battle that we fight? I mean, the minute, I mean, some of you right now are fighting that battle. There are things that are on your minds that you're dealing with that are weighing heavy on you that you're fighting to push to the side because you want to pay attention maybe, or maybe you're just consumed by them and you can't even pay attention. But if not, as soon as you leave here, there are things that weigh on us. And if there's nothing right now, just watch the news and it, there'll be something that alerts you, that alarms you, that concerns you and brings to your mind uh, just a weight of anxiety. The culture, it's crumbling. Christianity is not, it's no longer, it's not that it's not respected. I mean, Christianity is being attacked. there's, There's a whole shift that's going on. People who argue for tolerance now demanding conformity. They were never interested in tolerance. They want us to conform to their worldview, to only use certain ideas and expressions. Christians that we've respected and admired fall into sin or leave the faith altogether. There's new terms like deconstruction and deconversion that Christians are using as they leave the faith. Our marriages can be contentious. Our children can struggle. Our bodies fail. And in all these things, Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia and us today, in essence, Seth's paraphrase, I am holy and true and am reigning over and through all of these things to bring beauty from the ashes and will overcome all of your sorrows to a redemptive, glorious fulfillment. You can't see it now, but keep your eyes on me. That is what Jesus is saying to us. You can't see it now. You can't see the whole plan, how it's going to unfold. You can't see how the messy stuff is going to work together for good. It doesn't make sense. Keep your eyes on me, the one who is holy and true. In verse 8, we see the same unfolding pattern that we've observed in all of the messages to the churches. Jesus acknowledges not only his, uh, his awareness of their situation, their context, by using uh, uh, things that refer to the, 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 their, um, often their location, but the context in which they are, but also their lives. He says, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You notice what stands out about the church at Philadelphia, right? It's one of only two of the seven churches that has no criticism. Jesus offers no rebuke to them. He only commends them, encourages them. It was the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia are the two that we see that that happen. They had remained true to Jesus. He says, remaining faithful to his word and to his name. They haven't wavered. But, he acknowledges, they have but little power. This may sound like a criticism. It's not. It's just their context. It's their situation. It's actually a form of of commendation to them. That even though they have little power, and we need to listen to this, as the influence or power of of, of the Christian faith wanes in in our own context, that we are like the church of Philadelphia, that even when we have little power, we can still remain true. Now, in this specific context, he calls out this, what he, he calls the synagogue of Satan. He's pointing to the Jews, the persecution that they were bringing. This, uh, they were likely larger in number. They would, would likely have been um, allied with the empire of Rome. So they had power and influence. Um, I, I would say this. I, I dealt with this before when we dealt with the line, the synagogue of Satan. This is not in any way anti-Semitism. Okay? 
Jesus was a Jew. He's saying this. Paul, we're going to get into that in a minute. Paul was a Jew. This is not in any way a slight at at an ethnic group. It is pointing particularly to those Jews who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So just footnote in that. Don't don't let that that mislead you in that thinking. So the persecution then that the, the Christians were facing was they, they really wanted them out of town. They wanted to, to get them out of the way. And so they were doing everything from just attacking them verbally to making it difficult, to, for, difficult for them to get jobs and maintain jobs and work. And there were probably other things if you went to get government permits, uh, this kind of thing, that there would have been these types of persecution. And so to this, Jesus tells them, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, one person uh, that I, I read this week suggested that uh, this could mean that the persecution will not thwart their opportunity to grow spiritually. That God will bring, uh, using, using the persecution, he will bring about good fruit in their lives and this will not stop, stop God's good plan for them. I think that's a plausible um, uh, understanding of it. I, I certainly, I mean, it's certainly biblical. That is true, right? Persecution, facing difficulties, suffering hardships are all used by God to produce good fruit in us. So that's, that could certainly be what's going on here. However, this open door language, the way that it's used in the rest of the New Testament actually points to evangelism. Uh, in all the other contexts that we think of, I'll mention two, Colossians 4.3, Pray also for us, Paul writes, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 16.8, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So whichever way we understand it, what's clear is that no one will thwart the plans of God, be it for their own spiritual growth or for the gospel to move forward. So it's not a problem uh, in terms of where we land on this, but I do think there's a stronger argument that can be made that this is pointing to evangelism, and it actually helps us to understand the rest uh, of the message to the church here, that no circumstances we experience can undo the purposes God intends because he is the true and holy reigning king. He goes on to say that he will cause the Jews who oppose them to come and bow down before them and that he will protect them through all the adversities that they face. When I read that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way because I think where else in Scripture do we see this pattern of people coming and bowing down? That's not, that, that's not biblical Christianity. Christian, biblical Christianity isn't about power. If anything, we're the ones who bow. We, we serve. That's, you know, that, we follow the example of Christ. We lay our lives down for others. So what is this getting at? Well, if we go back to the open door language, then it helps us to understand that what, is, what, what, what Jesus is suggesting here is the evangelistic opportunities that are before the Philadelphian church to actually be a testimony to the Jews that have rejected them. The very ones that were persecuting them, their testimony, their standing strong, their remaining true, their being faithful to their Savior was going to serve as a testimony to the very ones who were persecuting them, leading some of them to come and bow down. In a sense, repent, not bowing down before them literally, but bowing down in repentance. Let me explain why I think this. First, Paul um, 
instructs us, and if you, if you look in Romans 9, 10, 11, I want to specifically look in Romans 11, that, 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 that God has not discarded his people, uh, the Jews. In other words, it, there isn't a, um, it, some people use the term replacement theology. That's, that's not a helpful term. It's actually kind of a pejorative term. God hasn't discarded them, but, and, and Paul's language here makes this clear, but that doesn't mean that they are saved. There's salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. So that is how people are saved. It's always been by faith. We, we did the study through uh, Genesis. Um, how long ago was that? Was that last year or two years ago? Uh, what did we see from the very beginning of Genesis, right? Sal- Abraham, faith, credited to him as righteousness. Okay, Salvation has always been by faith alone. So it's not our ethnicity that saves us. It's not being born into the right family. It's not following a certain set of traditions or anything. That's, that's what the Jews had come to believe. And that's why, why that opposition uh, was so great against these believers. In Romans 11, Paul writes this, So I ask, did they, referring to the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. He's emphatic. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So what this is saying is, Jews are not saved because they're Jewish. Okay? There's no other name under heaven and earth by which a man may be saved other than the name of Jesus. Again, Seth's paraphrase. So Jews are saved only by faith in the one who came, the Messiah. But what Paul is saying here is that the, the, the Gentiles being grafted in is going to serve in terms to make Jews jealous so that they will, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, how much of a testimony to the goodness and grace of our God that he, even though they've rejected him in a sense doubly, not, not only as sinners, but have rejected him as the Messiah, that they will indeed one day turn. So I think there's a strong argument here that what Paul, who is a Jew, remember that, is saying, is that even though it is hard for those who have been born and raised to believe that they're God's chosen people simply by their birth, simply because of the family they were born into, it is really hard for them to believe that others could be uh, re- recipients of God's favor by any other means. But God is going to use that. He's going to use that here in Philadelphia. He will use the faith and the testimony of these Gentile believers in the Philadelphian church to woo the Jews, to have the, the, the ones who have thought they were the people of God but were not, to come and understand that they have missed the Messiah, who Jesus really is, that all that their prophets had foretold had come true in the person of Christ. And so I think this bowing down then is referring then to the repentance of the Jews who would come to realize that Jesus is who he says he is. Because not only do we see the word submit, I think, or the, the word bow, which would, would indicate submission or uh, repentance, but also Jesus adds in verse 10, they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that I have loved you. Gentiles, us, This will serve then as a testimony. It will finally click all the promises, all the things that they heard their rabbis teach. They will remember the words of God delivered by Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 32. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. 
This is what God said way, 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 way back. And now it's coming true, and indeed it's still coming true. Isaiah 65, 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. We are grafted in in the same way God can and will use your difficulties, your suffering, your hardships, even persecution, to shine as a light to draw others to believe in Him. This is the point. The difficulties and hard things that you're going through that you think are a waste, that you think are some kind of spiritual abuse, that you think that uh, God doesn't love you or that you know, He loves somebody more, none of it's wasted. He can and will use this to draw others to Himself or do something else for His glory. He doesn't promise us that we won't face tribulation, but that we will be kept safe through it. And this is what we see in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we're not promised to be saved from difficulty. We will face difficulty. We will face tribulation. And this is what Jesus says in verse 10, that he promises to keep them from the hour of trial. This is, a, a, this is not the end. This is a, a short period. That's why the term hour is used. It's actually um, describing uh, an act of judgment by God. It's directed to those who dwell on the earth in verse 10. Uh, we won't have time to look at all of the passages, but that, that phrase or that description, people who dwell on the earth, is reserved, at least in the book of Revelation, to describe the enemies of God, those who would reject him. So that's who this is aimed at, and Jesus has promised uh, to keep them safe through this. Not in, a, in an earthly sense. Some of them might suffer. Some of them might die but they would certainly be kept safe eternally. Uh, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So not only are the Philadelphians held safely, he promises to make them a pillar in the temple of my God and to write on them the name of my God. So here's a city of people who have lived with this ongoing fear of earthquakes, fearful to the point that they didn't even want to remain in the city but would go live out in the fields. And Jesus tells them that he will make them secure like a pillar, that he will make them a permanent fixture. It's interesting, I, I, I walked in the house last night and the screensaver was on on our TV and it has pictures from our lot. It's just, you know, it's our pictures. And uh, some of the pictures were ruins that we had taken of uh, when we were in Cyprus. And what's interesting is, even though the pillars, of course, would fall when cities would get destroyed, do you know what they always set back up? Have you ever seen old ruins? They always set the pillars back up. So there's no building, there's no roof, there's no floor, but there's, I have a picture, and it just never struck me until studying this passage this week and, and, and seeing that picture pop up on the screen last night, that like, they, they put the pillars back up. Why? Because pillars point to security, they point to structure, they, they point to permanence. And Jesus is saying, I will make you a pillar. So here's a city of people who have seen their city's name changed multiple times to accommodate the passing fads of earthly emperors, and Jesus promises them his name, a permanent identity that will never change or fade. 
And these promises are to us as well. We who have but little power in this world, we whose lives have been shaken and brought to rubble through hardships, we who have no significance in this life or feel like we've, uh, that we haven't left a mark that will last, the point of the message to the Philadelphians and to us today is that Jesus is holy and true and reigning over all. If we look only at our experiences and what we're going through, we will think that our lives don't matter that we don't matter, that our lives are being wasted, that God doesn't love us, that we need to try harder to earn His approval. But Jesus is saying to us, look up. Look up and live. Look up and see me, the risen and reigning King who is holy and true, who is ruling over all these circumstances. Don't look at your circumstances. I have given you a new name, my name, by which you are cleansed and completely accepted by the Father. I have made you a pillar in my temple, the heavenly temple. It's the only thing that will last because the world's fading away. I have crowned you with purpose and dignity, so that even though you think your days don't matter, I will see to it that they serve my eternal and good purposes, even using your difficulties to draw others to myself. And in the end, my new city will come down, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, And everything will be redeemed and made right. The promises of Jesus assured to the Philadelphian church, and they assure us today that our hope and our future are not grounded in what our hands have done, but by faith rest in the finished work of Christ. We are to fix our eyes on Him and trust. We are to point each other to Him, to look and live by faith. We are to patiently endure, keeping His word and His name. And we are to hold fast to the one who is holy and true, only to discover that it is he who holds us fast. To demonstrate that stronghold, he spreads his table out before us today, that we might take and eat, take and drink from him who loves us, who calls us his delight, who has made us precious, that we might be fed and strengthened to walk this journey of faith. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look and live. Help us to look and to see you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of God, holy and true, reigning forever. Reigning not just over major world events or end times, the timeline and all the things that we get so interested in, but reigning over our messes, our hardships, our suffering. Lord, would you help us to see that you will indeed use these things for your purposes and that when we don't see it, which we often don't, would you keep our eyes fixed on you? Help us to look to you and to live, to look to you and to trust, to look to you and to love as you have loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response amid.